Okay, so we continue with the uh, readings and uh, the uh, kind of illustrating or uh, exemplifying examples that Sariputta gives of right view and uh, ways to yeah ways to illustrate right view. Uh, the next one today is uh, that that. Uh, Sorry, put dimensions is the four noble truths, and the uh, <coughs> and this first reading is from Itivuttaka, uh, number one o three, and the Itivuttaka is a uh, short collection from the Kuttaka Nikaya, and that is uh, they were spoken by a a lay woman Kujutara. That's what. Uh, Itivuttaka uh, literally means um, uh, this was said. Uh, this was said by the Lord. This was said because it's uh, she would. Uh, she was a servant in the court of uh, the queen Samavati of the consort to King Udena of Kosambi. So she lived in Kosambi. So these are all discourses that the Buddha gave in, in Kosambi. And she would, um, because she was a servant, she had the freedom to go and listen to Dhamma, whereas the court ladies didn't have that, didn't have that freedom. This was said by the Lord. Because whatever recluses and Brahmins do not understand as it actually is, this is suffering, this is the origin of suffering, this is the cessation of suffering, this is the course leading to the cessation of suffering. These recluses and Brahmins are not considered by me to be true recluses among recluses, to be true Brahmins among Brahmins. These venerable ones live without having realized and achieved here and now by their own direct knowledge the aim of being a recluse the aim of being a Brahman. <clears throat> but because whatever recluses and Brahmins understand as it actually is, this is suffering, this is the origin of suffering, this is the cessation of suffering, this is the course leading to the cessation of suffering. These recluses and Brahmins are considered by me to be true recluses among recluses, to be two Brahmins among Brahmins. <clears throat> These venerable ones indeed live having achieved and realized here and now by their direct knowledge the aim of being a recluse, the aim of being a Brahman. And it ends with verses. Those who do not understand suffering or how suffering is produced or where suffering finally stops altogether without remainder and who do not know that path leading to relief from suffering they are destitute of mind release and lack release by wisdom too. Unable to make an end of it, they fare on in birth and decay. But those who understand suffering and how suffering is produced and where suffering finally stops, altogether without remainder, and who also know that path leading to relief from suffering, they possess that mind release and the release by wisdom too. Able to make an end of it, they never come back to birth and decay. Okay, so the next sutta is from the Sangyutta Nikaya, and this is from uh, Sangyutta 56. That's the last kind of book of the uh, 
of the whole collection, and it's on the Four Noble Truths. It's called the Satya Samyutta. <coughs> and this is Samyutta 56, Sutta number 44, the peaked house. Bhikkhus, if anyone should speak thus, without having made the breakthrough to the noble truth of suffering as it really is, without having made the breakthrough to the noble truth of the origin of suffering as it really is, without having made the breakthrough to the noble truth of the cessation of suffering as it really is, without having made the breakthrough to the noble truth of the way leading to the cessation of suffering as it really is, I will completely make an end to suffering. This is impossible. Just as bhikkhus, if anyone should speak thus, Without having built the lower story of a peaked house, I will erect the upper story. This would be impossible. So too, if anyone should speak thus, without having made the breakthrough to the noble truth of suffering as it really is, or of course through those four noble truths, uh, that I will completely make an end to suffering, this is impossible. But bhikkhus, if anyone should speak thus, Having made the breakthrough to the noble truth of suffering as it really is, having made the breakthrough to the noble truth of the origin of suffering as it really is, having made the breakthrough to the noble truth of the cessation of suffering as it really is, having made the breakthrough to the noble truth of the way leading to the cessation of suffering as it really is, I will completely make an end to suffering. This is possible. Just as bhikkhus, if anyone should speak thus, Having built the lower story of a peaked house, I will erect the upper story. This would be possible. So too, if anyone should speak thus, having made the breakthrough to the noble truth of suffering as it really is through the Four Noble Truths, I will completely make an end of suffering. This is possible. Therefore, bhikkhus, an exertion should be made to understand this is suffering. This is the origin of suffering. This is the cessation of suffering. This is the path leading to the cessation of suffering. An exertion should be made. This is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. Okay, this next one is from the same Sangyutta, Sangyutta 56, Sutta number 35. A hundred spears. Okay, we got a hundred spears again today. Bhikkhus, suppose there were a man with a lifespan of a hundred years. Who could live a hundred years? Someone would say to him, Come, good man. In the morning they will strike you with a hundred spears. At noon they will strike you with a hundred spears. In the evening they will strike you with a hundred spears. And you, good man, being struck day after day by three hundred spears, will have a lifespan of a hundred years, will live a hundred years. And then... After a hundred years have passed, you will make the breakthrough to the Four Noble Truths, to which you had not broken through earlier. It is fitting, bhikkhus, for a clansman intent on his good to accept the offer. For what reason? Because this samsara is without discoverable beginning. A first point cannot be discerned of blows by spears, blows by swords, blows by axes. And even though this may be so, bhikkhus, I do not say that the breakthrough to the Four Noble Truths is accompanied by suffering or displeasure. Rather, the breakthrough to the Four Noble Truths is accompanied only by happiness and joy. What for? 
the noble truth of suffering, the noble truth of the origin of suffering, the noble truth of the cessation of suffering, the noble truth of the way leading to the cessation of suffering. Therefore, bhikkhus, an exertion should be made to understand this is suffering. An exertion should be made to understand this is the origin of suffering. An exertion should be made to understand this is the cessation of suffering. An exertion should be made to understand this is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. So that's an incredibly striking image. Uh, um, you know, just saying how, how say how fortunate or how uh, important it is to <clears throat> have that have that insight, and uh, and how say unfortunate it is to live without that insight, and that cuts both ways. Uh, so to uh, uh, worthy of reflection and contemplation. So those are the suttas I had today. I'll continue with the readings of Ajahn Chah. This we're still on the. Uh, translator's preface to the book Being Dhamma. <clears throat> Variations in style and tone may be noticed in the different teachings. Apart from the limitations of the translator, there are a few reasons for this. First, two languages are being spoken. In northeast Thailand, where Ajahn Chah lived and established his monasteries, the native language is the Isan dialect of Thai, similar to Lao. As years passed and people from other parts of Thailand, as well as Westerners who had learned or were learning central Thai, came to study with him, he began to teach more in Thai. Lao is generally earthier, more informal, and even more a language of feeling than is Thai especially in Ajahn Chah's case, as it was his mother tongue. Speaking to people he had known all his life, his words tended to be more informal, even blunt, sometimes scolding. He spoke Thai to people from all walks of life and corners of Thailand and the world. Sometimes his language was simple, a little slow and perhaps pedagogical, as when instructing a group of middle-class people from Bangkok, sometimes grandfatherly, as when teaching young foreigners, sometimes humorous and extremely relaxed. He mainly taught and trained monastics, but gave a wealth of teaching to lay people as well. As to which voice was that of the quote-unquote real Ajahn Chah, no one who met him would venture to guess. He was a supreme actor who responded to situations with wisdom and compassion and an extraordinary array of skillful means. And he displayed a wide range of personalities while doing so. He was able to be comforting, inspiring, or terrifying, yet could also exhibit the most polished comic talent with a flawless timing and delivery that literally stopped people speechless in their tracks. Recollections of senior disciples were often startling to those who only knew Ajahn Chah in his later years and had fixed ideas about him. The former depicted him as tough and unsentimental, even ferocious, a man of mystery and a wielder of occult powers. But whoever he may have been, perhaps the most important fact is the great love that so many people came to feel for him over the years of his teaching activities. 
Those who have studied other schools of Buddhism or even other Theravada teachings may find that Ajahn Chah's use of Buddhist terminology does not correspond exactly to usual and accepted interpretations. His teaching was mostly non-technical and informal. Like most meditation teachers in Thailand, he did not teach from texts, and he often spoke of teaching as being, the, as being only the appropriate use of skillful means to point out the correct way, to clear misconceptions, and to help avoid deviations in practice. Thus, some misunderstanding could occur if the words are taken too literally or as having a fixed meaning. He sometimes speaks of the mind in the classical terminology of the aggregates of form, feeling, perception, thinking, and consciousness, and at other times simply as feeling and thinking. The latter is also used to describe a person's basic outlook on life or worldview. He often refers to the one who knows, a common theme in Thai Buddhist teaching, sometimes in a neutral sense as mind itself, a basic awareness with the potential for delusion or wisdom. Or he may speak of it as an awakened knowing, even as Buddha nature, a concept rarely broached in Theravada Buddhism. There are also Thai Buddhist terms derived from the Pali language that may not have the same meaning and significance as the corresponding Sanskrit terms employed in, in Mahayana. Other terms are used informally and in a fluid way by Ajahn Chah, whereas in Mahayana they may always have a specific meaning. And there are common Thai words of Buddhist origin that have taken on a different flavor in the vernacular. One recurring example is the Thai word Tammada, derived from the Sanskrit Dhammata, a term for ultimate reality, usually translated as suchness things as they really are. In Thai, it simply means ordinary and is often used by Ajahn Chah in conjunction with Tammachat, nature or natural. Nature is not meant to imply merely the physical environment and statements that we should not try to alter nature don't mean that we can't pull weeds or create irrigation systems, but rather that we should avoid living in a constant struggle of not accepting the way things happen in the realm of cause and effect. The words for natural and ordinary would normally be taken in a mundane sense by Thai listeners, but Ajahn Chai expounds on them in a Dhamma sense as the way things are. In translating from Pali and Thai, multiple renditions were often used to convey the range of meaning and flavor of the original. Anicca is generally understood as meaning impermanent, but Ajahn Chah often spoke of this principle in terms of the uncertainty of, of existence. Dukkha has been translated as suffering and also as unsatisfactoriness. The third of the three characteristics of insight meditation, the truth that there is nothing constituting a self or belonging to a self, has also been re rendered in various ways. Not self, absence of self, selflessness. Ajahn Chah sometimes used the Pali word anatta and sometimes Thai equivalents, so it seemed appropriate to use different English terms to fit the context and the flow of the language itself. 
Some readers may be familiar with certain translations of common Buddhist terminology, often depending on which tradition they have studied. The Pali word kilesa, for example, has usually been translated as defilement in Theravada literature, and the actual meaning is something that stains the original purity of the mind. However, this translation tends to take on moralistic overtones in modern English. In Tibetan Buddhist books, it is usually rendered as mental afflictions, emotional afflictions, or conflicting emotions. This variety was generally opted for here to convey the sense of something afflicting the heart, but occasionally defilement is used. The next section is called Carrying on the Tradition. Ajahn Chah lived in one of the more remote, unheard of, and inaccessible corners of Thailand. Yet somehow a steady stream of Western seekers found their way to his monastery beginning in the late 1960s, and many ended up staying under his guidance for years. This, quote, pot-bellied monk who looked more like a bullfrog than a saint, um, this is from Stephen Batchelor, uh, uh, a Thai forest tradition grows in England it's from the article that was he, he'd written in Tricycle. Uh, th this pot-bellied monk who looked more like a bullfrog than a saint, and actually his nickname when he was a layperson was, was bullfrog, <laughs> had an appeal and a way of communicating truth that reached across cultural barriers and the strata of society. Over the years, he touched many hearts and shaped many lives for the better. In Thailand, it was always striking to see the throngs of people who would turn up at even the most remote monastery when he visited. Watching adults come running from a village like children to meet his car, joyfully calling out, Lumpa, was an unforgettable sight. His very being was a refuge to people, each receiving what they could at their own level. Through his vibrant, joyous presence, he instilled an absolute trust and sense of safety. Today in the West, there are monastic communities in his lineage, including a number of monks who had the opportunity to live and train with Ajahn Chah. There are also many former monks and nuns, as well as lay people, who spent time with him. Visiting from time to time, one is struck by the great regard in which he is still held the love and gratitude people feel for him. From a simple remark such as, Lumpa was good, wasn't he? To the statement, he was the most remarkable person I ever met, and one of the greatest men in Thailand has ever produced. It is obvious how he affected people's lives. Yet this was no mere personality cult of blind devotion. He was always on the alert for disciples who depended on him too much, and he could make one's life miserable if he felt it was needed to get someone out of his or her rut. As he repeats in his teachings, the Buddha did not praise those who blindly follow another without trying to discover the truth for themselves. It would be possible to fill a whole volume with recollections of Ajahn Chah and commentary on his teaching. At this point, however, it feels appropriate to let the teachings speak for themselves. So we'll get into the actual, and this is an introduction, uh, and this is Ajahn Chah speaking. This is, these are beginning the translations now. The Buddha said, 
that one who sees emptiness, the Lord of death cannot follow. When an awakened being passes away, what happens next? There are only the elements of breaking up. There is no person or self. So how could there be death or rebirth? There are only earth, water, fire, and air dispersing. The Lord of death can then only follow after earth, water, fire, and air. There is no person to follow. Likewise, if you are looking for a solution to problems, there will always be problems because there is you. When there is no person, there are no problems. There is no need for solutions because there are no problems to solve anymore and no one to solve them. But if you believe that you die, you are going to be reborn. Today I'm speaking a little about the Dhamma for grown-ups. When those of childish intelligence hear that there is no self, when they hear that nothing is truly theirs, not even the body, they may wonder, should I stick a knife in my flesh? Should I smash all the cups and plates and be done with it because nothing is mine? It's not that way. It is thick obscurations that can lead people to have such absurd ideas. How can we make the mind incline and enter the Dhamma? The Sotapanna or stream enterer is one whose mind has entered the stream to Nibbana and does not return. Even if such people have anger, they do not return to the cycle of suffering and attachment. Even though there are desires in their minds, they will not return because of the power of knowing these things as they are. The Sotapanna enters the Dhamma and sees the Dhamma, but his, his being is not yet Dhamma. Sometimes there will be anger or desire, and he will know them, yet still follow after them, because although he knows and sees Dhamma, his being is not yet Dhamma. The mind has not become Dhamma. So he must study Dhamma, understand Dhamma, practice Dhamma, and see Dhamma. But to actually be Dhamma is something quite difficult. It is a place for each individual to reach, a point where there is no falsehood. We are all like birds in a cage. No matter how fine the conditions in the cage, the bird cannot be content. It will always be restlessly hopping about, wanting to be free. The wealthy and the privileged are no better off. We could say they are doves in gilded cages. From hearing the Dhamma all the way to seeing it, you will still have suffering and you won't be free of unsatisfactory experience until you are Dhamma. Until you are Dhamma, your happiness still depends on external factors. You lean on them. You lean on pleasure, on reputation, on wealth, and material things. You may have all sorts of knowledge, but this knowledge is tainted by worldliness and cannot release you from suffering. You are still like a bird in a cage. The correct practice of Dhamma is derived from a teacher who received it from another teacher and it has come down in a long lineage this way. Actually, it is just the truth. It doesn't reside with any particular person. If we respect the person of the teacher and only act out of deference to him or her, this is not Dhamma. We will practice as if doing a chore or fulfilling our duties because we see the teacher around. And when he or she is gone, we slacken. It's like working in a factory. We work for the company that owns it. We don't really like the job, but we do it to get money. 
We take it easy every opportunity we get. This is the way people tend to be. Relying on a teacher out of respect is one level of practice. But then we ask, when will we see the real Dhamma? The teaching of the Buddha is something that clarifies. It enables humans to enter the stream and see themselves. When we see ourselves, we see Dhamma. Seeing Dhamma, we see the Buddha. Then we have entered the stream. I've said this before. If you reach the Dhamma, you cannot lie. You cannot steal. We think that lying is deceiving others. We think we can act wrongly without others knowing. But wherever you are, doing wrong and not letting anyone know is impossible if you have entered the stream. To think you can is only the thinking of the ignorant. Whether living in a group of people or alone, even if you live in the middle of the water or up in the air, to do wrong and not have anyone know is impossible. When you truly, truly realize this fact, you enter the stream. If you have not entered the stream, you think you can do wrong actions and no one sees. You are just belittling yourself, not seeing Dhamma. Whoever sees Dhamma will not deceive others or do anything harmful, no matter what the situation. If we stop and recollect the authentic teaching of the Buddha, he said that wherever there is Dhamma, there is someone who sees. It is we ourselves. To think otherwise is a real loss. It is contradicting the intention of the Buddha when he talked about being a witness to yourself. If you bear witness to yourself, you will be unable to lie or do wrong, and your practice will always be direct and upright, just like a compass that always points out north and south. With a compass, when you enter a deep forest, you'll always be able to know in which direction you are headed. You might start to think you are headed east, but the compass will show you are going south. Then you realize, oh, I was wrong. It was merely my mistaken thinking that I was going east. The compass will always show you the right direction, so you will stop relying on your own guesses. Like this, wherever you are, you have this sense that shows you the truth. Our thinking may lead us elsewhere, but we have the compass. We can let go of our ideas and feelings because we learn that they will lead us the wrong way. It is the nature of people to enjoy doing wrong. We don't like the result that comes from it, but we are addicted to such actions. We don't want things to come out twisted or wrong, but we like to act in wrong ways. This isn't right view. Things don't just float up into existence by themselves. They are born of causes. We can't get the results without causes. We want to work a little and get rich. We want to realize path, fruit, and nibbana, but we don't want to do strenuous practice. We want to gain knowledge, but we don't want to study. We want to pass tests without applying ourselves. So we go to get sprinkled by holy water from Lumpa. What's the purpose? What will the water do? It's necessary to work hard and hit the books. But people are like this. Well, they may get a little inspiration from the old monks spraying them with water, but in the language of common folk, it's called not reaching the Dhamma. That is one level. In practicing Dhamma, there must be causes and results. Those who really apply themselves can put an end to doubt and can resolve and finish with problems. 
like the compass needle that always points true. We may enter the forest and think east is north because of our own confusion, but the compass is always pointing out the right direction. This is the nature of Dhamma. We call it Satchadamma, or truth. So practicing according to the way of the Buddha, there is no wrong. There is no wrong in the cause, no wrong in the result. There can be right view, or there can be wrong view. Whichever is there will be the root of your practice, firmly clung to. There are just these two kinds of path, but when you have wrong view, you do not realize that it is wrong. Rather, you will think it is right and good. You cannot see, and things will not go well. Actually, there is not a lot to learn about in the real Dhamma. There are just the principles of, practices, of practice that need to be applied. They concern things that already exist, and we only need to practice and gain direct experience. Those things we need to study are merely for knowing, for knowing what to practice and how to go about the practice. We should understand such and such. We should practice such and such. We should go straight ahead in such and such direction. That's all. The explanations and instructions are one matter. As to the teachings, we can compare it to mangoes. All the stages and characteristics of mangoes, such as sourness and sweetness, being small and growing large, can be found in a single mango. Studying one, it is possible to know about all mangoes. But meditation is different for various individuals. Some people need more study. If they don't study, they won't be able to understand anything. When we say that some people don't need study, actually they are studying too. They study directly through practice. There are these two approaches. We can study from ABC, or we can learn by following the model of the methods for practice. If things are not clear, we can look at the appearance and the actual existence of things, such as hail, hair, nails, teeth, and skin. Their nature is that they are not stable or reliable, not clean or beautiful. This is one way. If we study, we will really take a serious look at them and consider this. Without this kind of study, we are not likely to know. Even though we may read the words that hair and nails and the rest are not lovely, they still appear as beautiful and attractive to us. We don't know what is hidden there. The facts are already there, the aggregates and elements arising and passing away continuously. That is all. As for their being impure and uncertain, impermanent, suffering and non-self, that is already present. They are filled to bursting with these characteristics. We recite, Form is impermanent, feelings are impermanent, perceptions are impermanent, thoughts are impermanent, consciousness are impermanent. Thus we can say that we know, in a way, that is indeed one kind of knowledge. But when we are put to the test, we don't really know. When the time comes that form really displays its impermanence, then we cannot claim to know. When we get sick and the body is suffering intense discomfort, we get very upset and ask why this is happening to us. That's our impermanence right there. But we recite, form is impermanent, feelings are impermanent. We know it because of this study, 
but as to the actual phenomena of impermanence, our knowledge is not clear. We recite the words according to the scriptures, but we only know the formula. In spite of our melodious chanting, which we do so perfectly, we have missed the point. Some might even contemplate the parts of the body, doing the meditation on impurity and experience desire. When they say, liver, intestine, stomach, their minds run far afield, and they are thinking of chicken livers and kidneys, pigs' intestines and whatever they may have eaten before, and they start getting hungry. It can really take a long time before people understand. Actually, the truth is inherent in these things in its entirety. It's not necessary to make an elaborate business out of it. The Buddha emphasized meditation. When we sit to meditate, we can see the truth. The word for meditation, bhavana, may be interpreted as causing things to come about. Whatever has not yet come about, make it come about. Whatever is not yet in existence, bring it into existence. I'll leave it for there. So, if there's any questions. Uh, I'm in a, a Dhamma study group, and we're studying the Four Noble Truths. Mm. And uh, Longpur Sumedho's uh, retreat last February. Anyway, he keeps uh, talking about, uh, well, he talks about thinking leads to doubt. That makes sense to me. He also says thinking is divisive. Mm -hmm. Do you, what does that mean exactly? Have some ideas. Well, I mean, as soon as you start thinking, you're already dividing things. I mean, you're already dividing things up. And I mean, it's the way that our normal thinking functions. I mean, we're, we're starting to classify things, we're starting to decide something's good or bad, something's likable, unlikable, something is preferable, not preferable. Um, you, know, and the real, you know, we need to learn how to use our thinking, but I mean, thinking gets, up, gets exalted. Um, I mean, that where we've been held hostage by the, you know, I think, therefore I am. And, uh, and it, uh, you know, that uh, uh, you know, tends to, you know, just create, you know, we tend to use thinking or assume our thoughts to be self. Um, this is me, this is who I am, this is what I am. This is the sum total of my being, is this particular thought at this particular moment and then get confused when it changes, which it's doing all the time. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was a d division between head and heart or something, or away from true nature or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yes, conceivable. Thank you, Longpa. Uh, I was curious if you can speak a little on the Four Noble Truths, the um, three phases and 12 aspects, and maybe... Oh, that's for a whole other day. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe one phase? <laughs> well, I mean, the three phases and the 12 aspects, of course, there's four noble truths. Uh, three phases are the, um, the actual, the truth itself, say the duty to it, um, and, and, and that's in the Dhammachaka Pawatana Sutta, so that they say, like, this noble truth of suffering uh, should be understood 
and then the noble truth has been understood. So each noble truth has three aspects, and that's and that's in uh, so that that the actual truth itself, this the sort of response or the, the appropriate response, appropriate um, way to duty towards it, and then the having completed that that duty. So. And four truths, three different ways of, of approaching it. So get 12 in its 12 aspects. I appreciate those teachings from the Yativutika, just like uh, specifically the emphasis on uh, anybody who says they've come to an end of suffering through some other means other than realizing the Four Noble Truths that can't be, yeah. mm-hmm. and that it's through the Four Noble Truths. And because... Uh, I see my, in the, like, the mind does that a lot, like, yeah, desire leads to the ending of suffering, but I could probably do this, and it's, it's okay, and it <laughs> won't suffer that much, or, you know, and it's just the, and then it, that's how we get burned every time. Yeah, it's, it's sort of the, the weasel mind. <laughs> <laughs> trying to weasel out trying of the Four weasel, Noble Truths. Trying to weasel out of the Four Noble Truths. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we can go ahead and continue our afternoon of practice. <laughs>